Well, good morning, Canyon Hills. It's great to be here before you. I always find it an honor and a privilege to be able to stand before you and try to the best of my ability to deliver God's word. But before we get started, if you guys can please take the basket of pens that is at the end of your aisles and pass it through. You'll notice that you have no points in your outline, which means I have one point. I hopefully you guys will get it by the end of the service. But I wanted to tell you guys that we're right in the middle of this series called Christian. And we've been talking about the fact that you could be a Christian and think about anything you want to think and do just about anything you want to do because the Bible doesn't tell us what a Christian is. In fact, a Christian was a term that was used in the first century to describe Jesus' followers, but it's not the term that Jesus' followers would use to describe themselves. In fact, Jesus gave his followers a very narrow description of what a follower was, and he called them the word disciples, which means Jesus' follower. And that's why we've said since the beginning that you can be on every side of all the issues. You know, we're talking about political issues or financial issues, international issues, family issues, even, even at war. You can find Christians on both sides of those issues because you can define and describe a Christian any way that you want. But when you open up the Bible, especially the New Testament, and you ask the question, what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? His word, his Bible makes it very, very clear. In fact, Jesus said that if you don't get anything else, this is the thing that should describe you. This is the one thing that should characterize you above everything else. And he says this in John chapter 13, 35. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciple. There's that word again, disciple. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciple if you love one another, he says. He says, it's not the gold crosses that you wear or the bumper sticker of the fish on the back of your car or even the fact that you come to church or that you were baptized. He said, here's how they're going to know how you love one another. And all of us think we know something about love, and we do because we've all experienced love to some extent. But Jesus said, okay, people are going to know that you are my followers by the way that you love each other. And then he takes it further and he says, I want you to love each other the way that I have loved you. Well, see, here's where the problem starts. Because when you open up the Gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you look at the way that Jesus loved, in some ways, it's a lot like his call to follow him. It's, it's, it's a little bit terrifying and sometimes it's, it's, it's inconsistent. But when you look at the way that Jesus loved, there's this tension there. There's a tension that we all, to some extent, want to resolve in our hearts and especially in our minds because sometimes it even seems irrational. So today, I want to talk to you about the dynamic that Jesus brought into this whole love equation that makes it messy to love the way that Jesus loved. And we're so uncomfortable with this tension that it causes Christians and churches to lean towards one extreme or another. In fact, it drives conservatives like me towards being too judgmental and non-conservatives towards being too mushy. Seemingly, there can't be any absolutes except don't be a conservative. It makes conservatives afraid that people are going to get away with something, and it makes non-conservatives fearful that we might make people feel bad about themselves. In fact, it's a tension that we are so uncomfortable with that many of us growing up went to some churches that were on one extreme or another. And regardless of whether or where you went to church, it's not that you didn't believe what they were saying was true. It's maybe that you thought growing up that there was something missing at church. And maybe there was. Because when you open up the New Testament 
and you ask the question, how did Jesus love? Here's what you're going to discover. You're going to discover that it was messy, that it was inconsistent. And at times you just have to say, man, that, that is totally unfair. And at the end of the day, it, it, a lot of it is just really, really confusing. You see, because there's a tension there. And my temptation and your temptation is to resolve that tension. And if you don't hear anything else today, hear this. That if you try to resolve the tension that's created around Jesus' love, you lose something. You lose the ability to love the way that Jesus loved and the way that he called us to love. You give up something very important, and yet we are tempted to do it all of the time. Now, in our church here at Canyon Hills, we have tried to the best of, of our ability to hang on to that tension. But, you know, at times it does get messy, inconsistent, maybe seem unfair, and at times it might be confusing to some of you. And when we get these comments and complaints, you know, you, you put comments in those little cards that you're going to get at the end. And sometimes I read them, and I just kind of have to smile. You know, and I smile because we're, I, I think to myself, you know, maybe we're doing something right. Maybe as we try to hold on to that tension that you have when you try to love the way that Jesus loved. And I'll tell you where I see some of the expressions of this in our congregation. And that is on those horrible Sundays where we actually open up the scriptures and we have to talk about what Jesus says about divorce, remarriage, or tithing. And if you're divorced, and if you're remarried, and, and you don't tithe, it's, it's a lot like having a root canal without any Novocaine while you're here. And of course, and if we were to announce that next week we're going to talk about all this, then nobody would probably be here. You see, that's because there's a tension there. Whenever we open up the scriptures and we take the teachings of Jesus seriously, there is going to be a tension. Because Jesus sometimes seems to be forgiving, and at other times he seems to hold everyone accountable. At times he's harsh, and sometimes he's so kind. At times he just points out sin, and sometimes it seems like he just ignores sin altogether. You know, the other place where I see us feeling this tension here at church is any time that we announce that we're going to talk about sex or sexuality, all of a sudden, boom, we have a high attendance Sunday. And, and, and I don't get this. We say, next week, sex, boom, everyone's here. And the thing I always wonder about is, what do people think we're going to say? Like, we found this new fifth gospel, and in that fifth gospel, all of a sudden, God, Jesus says, it's okay to love the one you're with. And all of a sudden, all these rules that he has is, that were kept things off limit are all of a sudden okay. No. But you know, whenever we do talk down and we bear down and we spend a Sunday or two Sundays talking about sexuality, yeah, a lot of people come to church like crazy. But then at the end of it, they say, you know, that was uncomfortable, but can I get a copy of that message for my son or my daughter or my whoever? But not without attention existing first. Now, here's the deal. Personally and individually, we're all tempted to resolve this tension. In fact, it's what drove people crazy about Jesus. But Jesus was very comfortable with it. He was able to minister through it. And us, as a people, as a church, we dare not walk away from it. You know, it can be messy. And I can tell you as a pastor, it can, it can get really, really messy and at times, it may leave people thinking, you know, what does this church really believe or what is this church really about? Now, John, who wrote the Gospels, you know, you know, you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that John, John, the follower of Jesus, John got to be an old man. And we know that the rest of his disciples, Jesus' disciples, were scattered and eventually were martyred from the best that we can tell. 
Some of them just disappeared into antiquity, but John was a survivor, and he grew to be an old man. And about 40 to 45 years after Jesus left to, to, uh, to heaven, it became evident that Jesus wasn't going to come back. You know, Jesus says, I'm coming back, and these guys are thinking, okay, maybe it's Thursday or Friday, and it's Friday now, and he's not there yet. So he didn't show up. So years go by, and finally, and probably somebody tells John, you know, we really appreciate all of these teachings about Jesus, but you're getting to be an old man. Don't you think you should maybe write some of this stuff down? And so John writes what we call the Gospel of John, and he sits down, and he's an old man now, and he has all of these memories. He has all of these stories and all of this stuff that he has personally witnessed and seen And then he sits down and he writes it down and he begins this gospel. And he begins this account of the life of Jesus with this big grand picture of Jesus being like a word. And that God sent his word, Jesus, into the world and the word became flesh. And that he was human and that he walked among us and that he ate with us. And then John, he paints this beautiful picture. He says, it's like if Jesus painted a painting full of people, and then he went into the painting to interact with the people in the painting, except that the people in the painting did not recognize him, and they threw him out. I mean, think about it for a second. You're the apostle, you know, you're John, and you have to try to capture this very powerful, this very uh, interesting moment of time where he's trying to describe the conflict that he sensed among the people that Jesus came to love. And then in the opening section of that incredible piece of literature, he gives us the terminology. He gives us the words that best capture this tension that I'm trying to explain to you. That if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to bump into at some point or another. And here's what he says on John chapter 1, verse 14. He says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. You know, there's this great imagery with those words. He made his dwelling among us. He's saying that Jesus camped out with us, that he moved in with us, that Jesus lived with us. And he's not only talking to us 2,000 years later, but he's saying that we, he's saying that he and his buds, that kind of way. He's not saying that you and I kind of way. He's saying my buds and I, we, we live with them, we talk with them, we experience firsthand his teachings. He is saying, I have seen something, that you haven't seen. I have seen something that you had to be there to get. I saw something and I wish I could capture it so that you guys could understand it as well. And then he says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the, only, the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. He says, full to the brim of grace and truth. And you see, that's where that tension exists. Because we all know what grace is, and we all know what truth is, right? You know, truth says that you're accountable, but grace says, oh, you're forgiven. Truth says that you're broken, but grace says that you're fine. Truth says that you're going to have to work on it, but grace says that it's going to be okay. Truth says, yeah, but you're still accountable, and grace says that, you know, no matter what you do, I still love you. Do you guys see that tension? And you know what? All of us, through our personalities, kind of lean on one direction or the other, don't we? I mean, some of you were brought, up with, were brought up with parents, and one of them was Grace, and the other one was Mr. Ungrace, wasn't he? He was all about the truth, 
And your parents would, you know, argue behind closed doors on how to best raise you. But which one did you like better? Which one did you tend to go to all the time? Didn't you go to Gracie all the time? Because I know I did, because Gracie always said, hey, it's okay to be you. She loved me just the way I was. And I don't know what happens at your home, but, it, but in our home, this happens all the time. My wife tends to be truthy, and I tend to be Gracie most of the time. And when my kids try to get away with something, truthy is always there to speak truth into their lives, and I'm always there to extend grace into their life, except truthy always wants to know why she always has to be the bad guy, and you guys ever been there? But if you grew up in a good home, you got a good dose of both of those, didn't you? And here's what John said. This is so remarkable. I mean, this is, this is what he said. He says, I spent years watching, I spent years watching Jesus navigate the intricacies of very difficult circumstances and situations. And as I begin my gospel, and as I begin my description of what it was like to be with Jesus, here's what I saw. He says that he was absolutely full of grace and absolutely full of truth. But of course, we always want it to be one or the other, don't we? We want to push Jesus in one direction or the other. Because I like the verses that talk about truth when I'm telling somebody what to do. But when it's about me, I like the verses that have to do with grace. And John said, I watched him, and the best that I can describe it is that he was brimful of grace and truth. And then he goes on to say this, Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace, already given, which literally means that we've all received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, and that brings us to a point of clarification in verse 17, and he says, for the law, I mean, we all know what the law is, you know, the law of Moses along with the other 600 commandments found in the Old Testament, he says, for the law was given through Moses, and you guys saw the movie about Moses. You guys know Moses, hey, let my people go kind of Moses. And then he gets the Ten Commandments, and then the law says, thou shalt not, and thou shalt really not, and if do thouest, then you should go and atone for your sins and pay for your sacrifices. He said that the law was given through Moses, and that here's a huge distinction. And here's where I think John might have paused for a second, and he had to pause because he was writing, and he had to figure how to best say this. And he wants to wonder, he's like, how do I put this in writing? Because he goes on to say, grace and truth. And I'll pause it for a second to tell you that he uses the word came. He doesn't use the word given. He uses a different term. Grace and truth came. The word was begotten. It was born. It showed up as a full package. He says, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Not the balance of grace and truth, which is where we all want to be, but the full measure of grace and truth. And this is what made Jesus so messy. That's what made him so confusing. And in some ways, it made him so unpredictable because everybody wants to lean on one or the other, don't we? And John, John said that he was all of it. And he brought all of it to bear on every individual that he spoke to. And he brought all of it to bear into every single situation. And just when you thought that he was going to go one way or another, he was grace and truth in a body. And if you begin to read the Gospels with that lens, you'll start to see it over and over again. 
In fact, one day he shows up, and you guys will remember the story if you grew up in Sunday school. One day he shows up at this well, and there's this Samaritan woman that comes out, and he's all alone, and the Samaritan, and he speaks to this Samaritan woman, which we weren't supposed to do. So the first thing you see there is some grace. And she's like, why are you talking to me? You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan. And he says, you know, I, I like to drink some water. Could you use your jar to get me some water? And she's so amazed that he is talking to her, probably thinking, you know, what's up with that? Then just when things aren't going well, he says, you know what? Why don't you go down to your town, the town of Sichar, which is where she was from. Why don't you go down to your town and get your husband for me? And she says, well, I have no husband. And Jesus says, I know. And then he reaches into the most painful, shameful part of her lives. And here comes the truth part. And he says, the truth is that you've had five husbands and the man that you're with now is not even your husband. And even Samaritans know not to do that. You know, he's pretty much saying, hey, you've done a horrible job as a woman when it comes to men. You're not good with men. And at this point, as we read this, our natural inclination is we're all thinking, like, well, wait a minute, Jesus. Didn't you go to seminary? You're not supposed to say that. You don't bring up the painful, shameful parts of someone's life because I thought it was supposed to be grace and truth. So where's the grace? And then Jesus says, he reveals something to this woman that we don't find him revealing in any other part of the Gospels. He looks at her in the eye, all alone at this well, and he says, do you know who I am? I haven't told anybody this yet, but I've chosen you, a Samaritan woman. You are face to face with the Messiah. And he said to her, and I can give you water that will quench the thirst of your soul in such a way that no other man could ever do. And so she leaves her jar and she runs down to her town and she starts to tell the people with whom she probably has no credibility with, saying, I have met the long-awaited Messiah of God. Well, what about Jesus' interaction with Matthew, the tax collector? Do you guys remember that story? Because everybody hated Matthew because everybody hated tax collectors back then. I mean, we kind of hate them now, anyone? If you're working for the IRS, I apologize in advance. But, they, you know, they were all considered Jewish traitors back then. And in the New Testament, they had categories. They were tax collectors and sinners. And tax collectors were so bad that they couldn't even be in the same category as sinners. And one day, while Matthew was collecting taxes, Jesus says to him, you know, I want you to join my group and follow me. Now, think about the disciples there for a second. They're probably thinking, wait a minute. You want to have a tax gatherer in our group? I mean, people are going to think that we approve of tax collectors and tax gatherings. Jesus, aren't you afraid that people are going to think that you approve of that? To which Jesus would have said, well, it's actually going to get worse. We're actually going to go to Matthew's house, invite all of his tax collecting friends. We're going to have a gathering. So yeah, if you think your reputation is bad now, wait until about six o'clock where this party really gets started. You're not going to have a reputation in this community because Everyone's going to see you mixing with tax collectors and sinners. I'm sure the disciples kept thinking, you know, doesn't it concern you that it looks like you're approving of such things? To which what Jesus said is, what do you think I'm here for? The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. I'm not here to guard my reputation. And then if you grew up in Sunday school, you know that when he was crucified, that Jesus was crucified between two thieves. The Bible tells us that it was two thieves, but I, 
I don't think they were thieves because they used to crucify the worst of the worst. These men couldn't even be trusted to, to be slaves or to work in the mines. And he's crucified between two, and one of them says, hey, we're getting what we deserve. And you would expect Jesus to say with all of his grace, you know, don't be so hard on yourself. It's going to be okay. But Jesus is more like, you know, you have no argument here. But when you breathe your last breath, and when I breathe my last breath, we're going to the same place. Because today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, as I read this, I'm thinking, wait a minute. A few chapters ago, you, this young rich guy comes to you, and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you remember what you told him, Jesus? You told him that he had to sell everything and to follow you, and now this guy gets in at the last minute? I mean, this guy doesn't even have an opportunity to recommit his life. What's the point of recommitting from the cross? He has a few minutes left? That's, that's totally unfair, and it's totally confusing. We have to give up everything and follow you, and he gets in at the last minute. There's no point on rededicating his life. So this is completely meaningless. Last minute plea for mercy that Jesus says to him, Today, you, the best of the best and the worst of the worst, today you will be with me in paradise. Do you guys see the tension there? I'm just telling you that when you try to resolve it, you lose something. And then maybe the most famous story of all, and it finds its way into the Gospel of John, it's about a woman who was caught in adultery. And it's such a strange story because they bring her to Jesus and they say, Jesus, according to the law, remember the law that was given through Moses? And according to that law, she should be put to death. She should be stoned. And what Jesus could have said is that, well, according to Roman law, you can't put her to death. But instead, he decides to play the law of Moses. And he says, okay, let's play the law of Moses. Let's go ahead and stone her. And you, that is without a sin, you go first. Just try not to hit me in the process. Go ahead and stone her. And the person without a sin, you start. The person who has never committed adultery in their heart, you start. The person that has never looked at a woman lustfully, you go ahead and start. That person that thinks, oh, I would never do that, you go ahead and throw the first stone. And when all of a sudden the law of Moses and the law of retribution begins to break down and they all start to walk away, Jesus makes everyone even more uncomfortable. And he looks at this woman and he says, I don't condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. And you're like, wait a minute. So which one is it? Is it I don't condemn you or you're a sinner? Because we always want to have it one way or the other. But it's both because that is how Jesus loved. He was the embodiment of grace and truth. Folks, and I can go on and on about stories in the Bible where, where Jesus always pointed out truth after he was having grace. Now, again, as a church, we always try to get this right. But we don't always get it right. But when we find ourselves in these difficult, difficult situations, we say, God, we're, we're not just going to be the truth church because that would be so easy. And I have to tell you, I'm prone that way because I'm pretty good at it. I like the truth part. I'm all about the principle. But it's, when it's me in trouble, I like the grace part. So you see, we're conflicted. You know, we're trying to figure this out and it's messy. It's messy. 
And if you want to know what Jesus meant by what Jesus said, then you watch what Jesus did. And if you want to know what Jesus meant when Jesus said to love one another, then you watch how Jesus loved. And do you know how he loved? Well, first, he calls sin, sin. And then he paid for it. And having paid for it, he declared, I don't condemn you. And then he says to all of us, now that I've called sin, sin, paid for it and say, I don't condemn you, now I want you to do one more thing for me. I want you all to leave your life of sin. And if you don't, I still love you. And if the woundedness and shrapnel of your own sin have left you at a place where you're not even sure that you'll be able to walk away from it, he says, I still love you. And if someone has sinned against you and has sent you into this spiral of self-destructive behavior and you're not even sure that you're ever going to recover from it, then he says, I still love you. And he says, and the truth is that you're a sinner, but the grace is that I don't condemn you. And no one will ever love you as much as I do. But there's a tension there between those two, isn't there? And do you know why we can't let go of the truth? The reason that we have to keep saying that what's true is because sin has a, has a hold on us. It's got this gotcha on us. And God doesn't want us to get us. So constantly he says, here's what's true. Here's how you have to live. Here's how you have to treat people. Here's what you have to do with your morality and your ethics. Here's how you have to be honest. And here's why you shouldn't cheat. And here's why you shouldn't steal. And here's why you have to confess. And here's why you have to be accountable. Because sin has a hold on us. It has this got you on us. And he doesn't want us to get us, to get you. And the reason that you can't let go of grace either is because to some extent, since sin already has a hold on us, grace is our only way back home. Grace is the only way that you will ever be able to connect or reconnect with your heavenly Father. And so you need truth and you need grace. And if Jesus... If Jesus was the embodiment of grace and truth, and if the church is his body, and if you are the body, and we're his body, and then we are his hands and his feet, then we, and listen to this carefully, we are the best expression of Jesus that anyone will ever know. So folks, we have to get comfortable with this idea and this mess and this unfairness and this inconsistency and all this stuff that goes along with managing the tension between grace and truth. You guys know what you call a group of liars, cheaters, divorced, remarried, living together, jealous, greedy, lustful, porn-watching, tax-dodging, law-breaking, who eat too much? You guys want to know what you call a group that come together that they believe in Jesus is the light of the world, but they need more light? You know what do you call a group like that? You call it church. So you see, there's only one way to make it work. Grace and truth. And I'm convinced that the church is at its best when it embraces both grace and truth and refuses to let go of either. When it is willing to live with attention, knowing that if we try to resolve it, we lose something. Something that we all desperately need, which is both. So if you want to know what Jesus meant when Jesus said to love one another, there it is. It's messy. It's difficult. But we don't want to let go of it. 
Sometimes the tension is there, but we shouldn't let go of it. We dare not let go of either. Because there was a time in our lives, and there will be a time in our lives in the future when we're going to desperately and individually need massive doses of grace and massive doses of truth. And the church is to be the dispenser of both of those. So let's be a church. And remember, you are the church. You are the body. Let's be a church that is all about grace of God and all about the truth of God. And let's continue to pray that God will allow us to manage that tension to his glory so that people from all walks of life will know and be able to experience what God says through our example and through our lives. But there will always be a tension. Let's be that unique group of people that refuses to let go of either side. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we are just so grateful for your word this morning. Lord, not for my words, but your word, Father. The words that we just talked about in, in John, Lord. The words that you inspired them to write thousands of years ago so that we may be reading it here today. Lord, and I know that because your word speaks truth into our lives, Lord, I know that many of us are here this morning and we're wrestling with that in our own hearts. Maybe we try to lean one way or the other. Maybe some of us are all about truth and we tend to forget grace. Maybe all of us, a lot of us are just all about the grace and we tend to forget truth. Father, but we've learned this morning that you were all the embodiment and the full measure of grace and truth. So Lord, I pray that as we wrestle with that in our own hearts, that we would be able to use it to renew and transform our minds. Lord, and always that we would be a different people as we walk out of these doors as a result of hearing your word today. Lord, I want to put every single person in this room in your hands, Father, that they would be able to get closer in the relationship with you that as you ask them to take steps of faith, Father, that you will be with them, full of grace every step of the way. We love you this morning. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.